you will open your Bibles once again to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1. We'll be reading here in just a few minutes, uh, picking up in verse uh, 6. I think I'll back up into verse 5 and reading through verse 11. Again, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. I could not help but be impressed in these last few minutes as we sung. Who is worthy? Who who is adequate to stand at this place uh, at this time? To even speak, to, to, to even for a moment consider the greatness of the one who is indeed the singular, unique, the one, one and only King of glory. We are rightly humbled by a task such as this. I have made some remarks over the last few months in regard uh, to what I might call sermon planning and sermon preparation, two, two aspects that fit together. And in planning sermons, and notice a plural, uh, trying to fit together the, the calendar and the various texts that I want us to consider as I thought about what I wanted to do in this Christmas season and thinking, how many sermons do I want to do? And there have been years that I've done five or more. There have been years I've done three. There have been years I've done one. And uh, deciding that I wanted to do five and finally settling upon our text here from the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, it would be appropriate to go to any place in the Bible Because the entirety of the Bible is about the one whom we celebrate at Christmas, this King of glory. But I chose to preach from these first two two chapters of this Gospel of Matthew. What perplexed me for a time was how to divide up the text for five sermons. And... As I mentioned last week, as I know that you love the genealogies and came back today because you're going to get a second sermon from the genealogies, guess what? Next week, you're going to get a third sermon uh, from the genealogies. As I've studied these, this text in particular, and absolutely been fascinated, if not riveted, by the details of the plan by which God revealed, by which he presented this very one, the king of glory. And so uh, we're going to consider the, the central portion of Matthew's account today, and then next week we'll come to its conclusion as we endeavor to appropriately ask and biblically answer and celebrate this great question. Again, who is the king of glory? And we rejoice and we 
appropriately sing, and, and it is an appropriate confession. His, his name is Jesus. And he is king of all that is. But I think it's for us who are gathered here today, for those who have been forgiven our sins, which are many, we can rejoice in the specific reality, the specific experience that we just confessed. He is indeed the king of our heart. And for that, we give thanks. As I am reminded, and as I state many times, one of the great tragedies is I know my heart. And I am thankful that this king has gloriously triumphed by his work on the cross, by the sins, the great sins of my heart and the hearts of all who place their trust in him. So let us read this morning. Picking up in verse 5, Salmon, uh, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the follower, follower of, father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asap, and Asap the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Pray with me. Father, once again, we come to you, first of all, with a word of thanks, thankful for who you are and what you have done in your Son, the King of all glory. We thank you that we stand here as those who have been forgiven, who have been counted righteous because of Christ. And while we confess that, we indeed confess that we are dependent upon you. How we are amazed by the testimony to your grace. And may you take that which is said here today, and may you apply these words to our heart by the very power of your Holy Spirit, and may we truly sing of and confess the greatness of our great God and King, whose name is Jesus. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Last week, I made the attempt to accomplish a number of things. One of the great challenges of preaching is questioning whether or not what you intended to accomplish was actually accomplished. 
And so I'll remind you that I very intentionally went to this portion of Scripture and to emphasize the, the relevance of these biblical genealogies that I accused you of ignoring, of skipping over, etc., etc., etc. Now, one piece of advice in general for reading your Bible, as you should, is to utilize uh, this, the portion of a study Bible, and unfortunately, the, my pulpit Bible does not have cross-references, and I bought it for a particular reason. One, the pages are very heavy, so I can write, and it actually has wide margins on the outside of the page to make notes. And so, uh, uh, unlike most Bibles this day and time, they're very thin-paged, and they absorb the ink, and they get very messy. These pages are heavy. But I like the cross-references, because as you read your Bible, and you see those little A's and B's and C's, now, if you're me, you have to get your, mag you get your bifocals or your progressives, your magnifying lenses, and your magnifying glass to be able to see them. But they're there. And use those, as it pertains to these genealogies, to go to the stories that are represented in the stories. And every story is a testimony to God's faithfulness and to the revelation of His purpose of sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to be our Savior. So indeed, they are, they're relevant to us. They were relevant to those first readers as, again, uh, they were utilized throughout the course of the history of Israel to establish who had rights to the land that God had promised to Abraham, which tribe you were a member of determined which portion of land that you could uh, live on. Uh, and also, uh, it had, pertains to the priestly line, and then as we're seeing, to the royal line coming through Judah and then uh, David. And so for Matthew, he wants to take this genealogy and assert and affirm and prove that Jesus is indeed the one promised, and as we read earlier, fulfilling the promise made first to Abraham and later to David to be that great, that unique, that once and for all king. And so we connected, hopefully for you, the biblical connections between Abraham and David, and we sought to show you that when God bound himself to these individuals by way of covenant, he was in a sense mitigating the effects of the curse that was pronounced in Genesis 3. And so we contrasted the creation blessings and the curses that came through the fall and how God at some level mitigates these effects of the curse with the view to the effects, the reality of the curse being fully and finally reversed and eradicated in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, to see how the new covenant, of which we are recipients and participants, that new covenant is the fulfillment and the fulfilling of the promises made to Abraham and David. And I haven't said much about it, but 
see how it relates to what we typically refer to as the old covenant, that is the covenant made at Sinai with Moses and those that left Egypt. And so it, it is through that first covenant with Abraham and then later with David that we see, again, the plan of God's redemption unfold. This mitigation, so to speak, and that may not be the best word to utilize, but that's the word I'm going to use for right now. These wide-ranging and devastating effects of the curse. Those demonstrations of God's faithfulness anticipate the ultimate and final reversal of the curse accomplished in and through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ in the new covenant. We have our perfect king. We are no longer estranged from God. The heart of stone has been replaced with a heart of flesh. We are blessed in the heavenlies while we await the completion, that is the perfection of all things, the consummation of God's redemptive plan. We, like all others, who have believed God and had that credited to us as righteousness, do not experience every aspect of the reversal of the curse of the fall. But we do experience a degree of mitigation. And by faith, we live with the anticipation and the participation in the certainty that in and through Christ, the curse of our rebellion in Adam has been reversed, is being reversed, and will be ultimately and fully reversed and eradicated. It might could be said that in the final estate, the only reminder of the curse will be the scars in the hands, the feet, the head, and the side of the King of glory, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Just to highlight this, and I kind of wish I'd have prepared a slide, but I didn't. But in my notes, I've got two columns to contrast and compare blessing and cursing. In creation and under the curse. In creation, we have a fruitful earth, and under the curse, we have cursed ground. In creation, we have productive labor. Under the curse, we have frustrating labor. In creation, we have the promise and the command and the great blessing of progeny. Under the curse, we have pain in childbearing. Again, in creation, we have security. Under the curse, we have threat and danger. In creation, we have community. Under the curse, we have estrangement. In creation, we have fellowship with God. Under the curse, we have hostility towards God. In creation, we have innocence. Under the curse, we have guilt. In creation, we have clear purpose and meaning. Under the curse, we have confusion. In creation, we have a home. Under the curse, we have homelessness and wandering. In creation, we have life. Under the curse, we have death. So what is promised to Abraham and renewed and extended in David is God's promise to bless a people with a place to dwell securely, eternally and satisfyingly, with and in and through our great and promised King, 
our Lord Jesus Christ. Living in the fullness of that reality now and eagerly awaiting the not yet. That is, awaiting the one in whom and by whom the question is answered. Who is the king of glory? Reminding you once again from our text that we ended last week and we emphasized this uh, story that extends uh, from Salmon uh, through Boaz down to David. And, and it's a story as it's unpacked in that beautiful little four-chapter book of our Old Testament, the book of Ruth. And any critic will tell you it is one of the literary masterpieces of all of written literature. And in that great inspired, inerrant, infallible account, we find those that are helpless, namely Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, and that entire family. They are helpless, they're hopeless, they're homeless, and they're childless. And again, if you just write those things down, you can look at cursing and blessing and see. And in that story, it doesn't end with the darkness of their despair, does it? It ends with that great statement that this king with whom God will covenant is actually going to descend from the line of this hopeless widow who had such a horrific family tree. She was a Moabitess, I'll remind you. But yet, she is going to stand in the line of our great and promised king. So we pick up today with David, the shepherd who becomes the king. And God chose David and bound himself to a covenant that I look at, sometimes I'll say unilateral, sometimes I'll say unconditional, but God is saying, this is what I'm going to do through you, okay? And so David is ultimately God's chosen one. And, and, and just as you read the accounts in 1 Samuel, he stands in marked contrast to that first king of Israel whose name is Saul. And, and Saul is straight from what we might call central casting. If you look up in the dictionary, if you Google king you might get a picture of Saul because we're told he stood head and shoulders above everybody else. He was physically impressive. I mean, if you want a king, that's your guy. And yet, ultimately, he would prove to be a colossal and a tragic failure. And Samuel, the one who loved Saul so much, that great last judge and prophet of Israel, would be forced to say to Saul in the midst and as a result of his disobedience that you have done foolishly. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. Indeed, because you have determined that it is better to preserve the lives of kings and sheep. And as Samuel heard, what is this bleeding of sheep? I now hear in my ear these sheep that should have been devoted to God. You have exercised your own wisdom and determined they should be preserved. And that's why obedience is to be desired over sacrifice. And so 
The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Now, y'all know the story, or at least the outline of it. It is somewhat of a stretch, knowing what we know of David, to say that in some spiritual, moral way that he was superior to this King Saul. But yet that's God's declaration, and therefore it is true. And so as the selection process unfolds while Saul is still playing in the background, God instructs this great judge Samuel as he he realizes that the one that's chosen is going to come from the house of this man, Jesse. And evidently, Jesse had some impressive sons. But the one that was least impressive, and the youngest is always slighted, we know that. The one that was slighted was the youngest, whose name is and was David. And so Samuel is instructed, don't look on the outward appearance, because the Lord looks on the heart. Now, that could be wildly misunderstood, because here's the thing. The heart is desperately wicked. David's was, and ours are. Okay? But what God would see, I believe, is the imputed righteousness of David's greatest descendant, whose name is Jesus Christ. And thank God, because he's the king of our heart. That's what God sees when he looks at our wicked, double-minded, compromised hearts. And for that, we give thanks. And so David was God's chosen. And David was indeed the courageous one. We're told upon his selection and his anointing, which in the Greek, Mashiach, Again, coming into Greek as Christos, Jesus Christ, the anointed, the chosen one, the one upon whom the Spirit would fully descend and indwell forever and ever and ever. But we're told that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And tragically, the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And actually, a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. We'll say more about that in a moment. But again, by way of contrast, young David goes out to check on his brothers. And I can tell you, having an older brother, you always got to be checking up on them. That's just a necessary part of being a younger brother. Yeah. But David goes, and he is absolutely perplexed that the armies of the living God are frightened of this Philistine giant whose name is Goliath. And, and he is warned as he volunteers to go and fight this, this great giant that 
You don't understand. He's great. He's, he's big. He is terrible. And, and his confession to them is, my God has delivered me from the paw and the teeth of the lion and bear. His, he was not obsessed and he was not overwhelmed by the greatness and the terror of the giant. He was overwhelmed by the reality that he, came in the na- he comes in the name of the Lord of hosts. He came. In the name of his great God and his great deliverer. And so because the spirit of the Lord was upon him, he came without fear to fight that great enemy and ultimately defeated that enemy. But we know David's story. If you want to turn there, go to 2 Samuel chapter 11 for just a moment. Again, one of the decisions that I make in preaching is whether to ask you to turn to text or not. For some, that breaks their concentration. Uh, For others, it draws them in to focus on what the matter at hand is. But if you will, we're not going to read it. I just think sometimes you might like to kind of visualize what I'm referring to. You may have a heading over chapter 11 in 2 Samuel. Notorious heading. David and Bathsheba. And the text reads this this way, and it is a very pregnant text. In other words, when you read text, when you when you read this text, you should hear the thumber, thunder rumble in the background. Something wicked this way is coming. Okay? In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle. In other words, in the ancient world, a king was typically a warrior king. And unlike what we're familiar with, with leaders in Washington, D.C., that sit in their comfortable offices and send our young man into battles to advance their own political agendas, the kings of the ancient world were expected to carry the sword and lead their armies into battle. And so while he should have been with his armies, he sends Joab and his servants. And again, he remains in Jerusalem. Verse 2, Then late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And we know that as Bathsheba. And this tragic episode in the life of David begins to unfold. And again, we know the outline of the story. And it's among many things, this man, who is often described as a man after God's own heart, would fall to the depths of sin characterized by lust, adultery, and then murder. It is a reminder, take care lest you fall. It is a reminder to guard your hearts. And so David descends to this great depth of sin. And one of the things that's so glibly suggested to me and has been for many, many years, not unique to this particular church, 
is some type of way of defending our sin, our rebellion against God with some kind of flippant, well, David sinned. If you say that, then you betray the lack of knowledge of your Bible's testimony to the tragedy that came to this man because of his rebellion against God. As the prophet Nathan would later tell him, and as with the text will tell us in great detail, the sword will never depart from your house. You've pulled this stunt in secret. You're going to receive the consequence in public. And so the rest of David's life was spent living out the realities of this great sin. And so if you think, well, I, you know, all of us sin, you know the drill. You don't have to look much further than the life of David to be appropriately warned. But that's not the end of David's story. David was a great sinner, but he was a great repenter. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 51. Most of you recognize that psalm, maybe along with Psalm 23 and a few others, as some of the more noteworthy psalms. And it is a confession of sin. It is a statement of the reality of repentance. Notice in Psalm 51, verse 1, the opening line, Have mercy on me, O God. You know, I've told you many times, there's some prayers that's always appropriate for every Christian to pray every moment of every day. Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. It's a good place to start. Maybe a second one is, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Right? This is another one too. Have mercy. It's been a while since I've reminded you of this. The Hebrew behind that word is the Hebrew kesed. Sometimes you'll see it transliterated as H-E-S-E-D, Kessid. And those that write and speak to these things, it is a unique word that describes God's unfailing faithfulness to those to whom he enters into a covenant. Okay? It's a very powerful word that God, in his great love and his great faithfulness, will deliver his people. And so David appeals to what he knows, not to, God, I'm really sorry, and I messed up, and I hate I did this, and on and on and on and on and on it goes. The only thing I can appeal to is your faithfulness, not my goodness, your faithfulness. And so he goes on, and as he pours out his heart, look at verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. What a great metaphor for sin in the life of a Christian. Broken bones. I've broken two bones in my life. I broke my foot playing volleyball in junior high school. Go figure. I'm not the most... uh, you know, whatever, coordinated person in the world. I broke my collarbone. Uh, 1981, went over the handlebars of my bicycle. And I uh, love riding a bicycle. 
But there's never a time in the 40 years that passed that I get on a bicycle that I don't think about that. And it didn't take a lot of convincing to start wearing a bicycle helmet, just as an aside. But here's the thing about broken bones, as I've experienced them. Either case, the first thing is a very sharp pain. It's like an ice pick going through the entirety of your body that descends into a kind of a throbbing that goes throughout your, your entire body. And you cannot stand to be touched. I remember when Dr. Meacham examined my foot the day after I broke it, and he held my foot in his hand and he squeezed it. Oh, I've celebrated Jesus' name. Wow. And that thing ached, and that thing hurt. And here's the thing. And whether you, I, could, I won't do this, don't worry. I could take my shirt off, and I could show you the knot on my collarbone 40 years after the fact. And you could still look at my foot and see the knot on the outside of my foot from where those bones healed. And probably for 20-plus years, even after the pain is long gone, I didn't like for either place to be touched. It just, it just felt awkward and funny and just, just don't touch it. It left its mark. And as I mentioned with the bicycle bit, kind of left a place in my psyche, in, in, in my brain, in my memory, that I'm kind of sober. And so it, that seems to me that, yes, indeed, we as believers fail. We sin. We, we do. There's no debate, no discussion. But it's like a broken bone. It aches. It, 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 it just doesn't feel right within us. And we're quick. We flee to the place that that broken bone may be set. And that ache in our hearts over rebellion against God is healed. And there's an appropriate memory, both of the pain of the rebellion, but of the mercy of the healing. Again, I can rub that collarbone right now. And it just simply reminds me of the goodness of God's healing. The goodness of God's healing. And so if you're going to go there, everybody sins. If it doesn't feel like this, if it doesn't feel like broken bones under the hands of God, you need to ask yourself some questions. I'll just leave it like that. You need to ask yourself some questions. His prayer, create, bara, because only God baras, folks. Only God is the subject of that verb. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. One of the few things the theology professor at Beeson rightly said was David saw the Spirit taken away from Saul and he knew what the implications were. Saul went mad. He became a murderous tyrant. So David's prayer, because you're faithful, because you're in covenant with me, you have made a promise, 
Do whatever you will. But restore. Restore this right spirit. And whatever you do, however that sword is going to dwell over my house for all the days of my life, however that plays its way out, don't take your spirit from me. Don't take your spirit from me. And so, David was indeed the sorrowful one. The sword did not depart. And again, his life would be worthy of a modern-day soap opera or a Shakespearean tragedy. Again, Nathan confronted David. You have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. And there's actually, I think I've mentioned this, there's actually a, what we call a gloss in the text. Uh, one indicts David, which I think is the correct reading, that later copyist of the text thought it too much to indict David, and they came up with this little phrase. But the thing is, both are true. When Christians sin, we allow the unbeliever to blaspheme God. That's what it does. That's true. But again, it was against God, and David was the guilty uh, one. And so David's house would be perpetually troubled, but God would keep his promise. We read earlier from 2 Samuel chapter 7, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul. Again, whom I put away before you, your throne shall be established forever. God made that covenant long before David sinned. And as Paul would write in 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, and all of us have been, Every one of us. He remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. He has bound himself by his own integrity to be faithful to those that he brings into this covenant. That's David. Let's look at Solomon, the wise king who chose foolishly. Notice again, back in our text in Matthew, sometimes... We in the church are kind of squishy, kind of, well, we don't need to really call people out. And I, and I understand that. I'm sensitive to that. We, we don't need to say this, that, or the other. But notice how the writer of Scripture, inspired by the Holy Spirit, spoke of this particular situation. That David fathered his son Solomon by the wife of Uriah. There's, there's no, you know, covering over this great and horrible sin of this most well-respected king. That this all came about by sin. And indeed, God triumphs. God's purpose, God's plan triumphs, even over sin and rebellion. So Solomon is the king who chose foolishly. First Kings 4.31 says of him, For he was wiser than all other men. And again, the enigma to me, or the paradox, whatever you want to call it. I don't know that this is a proverb of Solomon, we, I don't, but Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is the beginning of insight. And yet, Solomon, the wisest of all men, seemed to act more foolishly, at least, than most men. So, we're told in, in 1 Kings 4.20 of the great enormity of his wealth. Uh, great territory, again, what did God say? 
I'm going to give Abraham this portion of land. David, you're going to, you're, a descendant is going to uh, rule over this land. So there's the land. Uh, uh, you're going to be blessed to Abraham. Well, guess what? The king in the kingdom is wealthy. The text tells us that Solomon received 666 talents of gold every year. I did the math. That is approximately 25 tons, which by today's valuation, gold is right around $2,000 an ounce. It's $1.6 billion annually. He was a man of great wisdom, of great wealth, of great power, of great prosperity. He was selected to build uh, the temple. And I, I think what we have in 1 Kings 4.20 is to remind the astute Bible reader that he stands in contradiction of everything God said the king should be and should not be. That, that the, the people are warned, don't get a king that acquires many horses, many wives, excessive silver or gold, because those things are too tempting, even for the king. And so we see the folly of this wise man, 1 Kings 11, 1. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women. He has 700 wives and 300 concubines. And right there makes me question the analysis of his wisdom, but enough about that. I heard a weak one back there, but amen, that's right. Verse 4 says, For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Which in itself is an astounding statement. But Solomon followed the way of carnality and sensuality. We don't have time for me to get into all of the examples and illustrations that I could give from observation in my own life, beginning as teenagers and continuing into adulthood, of those who have wrecked their lives and wrecked the lives of their families by their succumbing to carnal and sensual and fleshly desires, okay? And so we should be appropriately warned. But yet, this wealthy man, who so foolishly followed his own carnality, acknowledged the poverty of the rich man or the poverty of his wealth. Ecclesiastes 1.14, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and it's striving after the wind. What's he saying? Everything I've accumul accumulated and everything I've accomplished isn't worth a warm bucket of spit is what he's saying. A little quote from Harry Truman. But yes, it, it, it was, it was, it, it, there was no point to it. And he, so he recognized the, the folly of all of this. And as he closed out that beautiful book of Ecclesiastes, he wrote this. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Young people, hear me. Please hear me. Please hear me. Remember your creator. Your creator is your savior. Okay? Just, just so you understand. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come. The evil days are when you sign up for Medicare. Just as a, okay? Before you say, I have no pleasure in them. And if you go follow the text out, if you understand what's going on, 
It's just a poetic description of what it means to get old. Seriously, that's all it is. Remember, pay homage to your Creator right here and right now. And folks, if we're not standing beside your casket, you're still youthful enough to repent and remember your Creator. So, that was the discovery of the godly man. Tragically, we see the foolishness of the next man, and we see this king, Rehoboam, under which the kingdom divides because of his foolishness to reject all wisdom. So David and his descendants left behind at best a mixed legacy. Far too often they left behind a legacy of compromise and complicity that plunged them personally and the nation corporately into idolatry, apostasy, and ultimately judgment. Yet God would prove himself faithful to a remnant and faithful to himself, and he would accomplish his purpose to redeem a bride for his son, to establish an eternal kingdom for the, and for the purpose of dwelling among a kingdom of citizens he would claim out of this world. Final thing, very quickly. Josiah, the boy king who hears and obey. There's a tragic context to the life of Josiah. Everything that can be corrupt about a nation was present in the, in the nation of Judah. And he inherits the throne at eight years old. I'm at, nah, I won't say that. I'm going to leave that alone for right now. He inherits the throne in a troubled day. And as his reign unfolds, 2 Kings 22.3 tells us of one who discovers the Word of God. Now, we could preach for a long time about the Word of God. That Word is sufficient, and it provoked a profound revival in the heart and the mind of this king, Josiah, that that Word did not return void. And he recognized his sin and the sin of the nation, and it had widespread implications for that nation. And we always pray that in every place and at all times, the Word of God would be rediscovered, and God, the Spirit that inspired that Word, would provoke repentance and renewal and revival. And folks, because the same Spirit that inspired those texts the same spirit that indwelled you at regeneration is the same spirit that worked today. We still have that same hope and we still pray that same prayer. And so the nation was spared, but it didn't last long. It didn't last long. Josiah died an early death. And as it mentions his son, and we'll talk about him next week in the dark days of the exile and asked and answered the question, where was the faithfulness of God? But there's a sense where the prophet Jeremiah presents to us a bit of an enigma in Jeremiah 22, 24, in prophesying against Josiah's descendant that he should be childless, have no success, and no offspring shall sit on the throne of David. So we have a real dilemma that the inspired word of God that says this Davidic line is going to end with this rebellious descendant of David, rebellion that was sown into the heart of these kings and that nation by the complicity of David himself. And yet, Jeremiah would also write, 
that I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as a king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely in the land. There's never been a day that the people of God could be said literally to live securely in the land. Metaphorically, we're secure in the kingdom and in its king. But I don't see a day in the return or the incarnation that we could say that that has been fulfilled. And so as Josiah passes off the scene, so ends the rulers that are both David's line and follow David's lead in serving God. And so where does this leave us? Where did it leave the people of God, his people and plan to carry out the promises made to Abraham and David. Remember, Abraham, go to the place. I'm going to give you the land. You're going to be a great nation. You're going to be prosperous. I'm going to bless. Your name's going to be great. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to bless you and bless those who bless you. I'm going to give you great offspring so much that you can't number them. You're going to persevere in the land. The presence of the Lord is going to be with you. I'm going to protect you wherever you go. To David, I'm going to give you an heir and a house and establish this king forever and ever and ever. There's two unilateral, unconditional covenants through which God has promised to raise up a great people under the protection and prosperity of a great king who rules justly and wisely in a promised place. Yet, as we close today in the text, in the text, the land is in peril. The people are impoverished and the promised heirs to the throne are deposed and accursed. Can God or will God raise from this rubble the fulfiller and the fulfillment of his promises? Will the light shine in the darkness of human sin and failure? We should always be reminded, and I'm going to intentionally close at this point. No matter how dark the night, whether a personal dark night of the soul or dark nights experienced corporately as the people of God, or cosmically as the image bearers who are sinful and live in a sin-cursed world, for those with the eyes to see, there is a light shining in the darkness, a light to see and by which to see and be guided home. The light may appear as the faintest twinkle of the most distant star hidden by the clouds of sin and rebellion and obscured by the tears of our own despair. But the light shines and will be seen by those who by grace have been given the eyes to see even that most distant glimmer of light that is the presence and the promises of our King of glory, our Lord Jesus Christ. While that light may appear, emphasis, may appear to us, It is, and we know it is by faith, the eternally brilliant light of the one whose plan, whose purpose, and whose process is perfect, sure, and enduring. Let us pray. Father, once again, thank you for your word to us, for your truth, for the testimony to your grace, to your faithfulness. So many times, whether personally or corporately, we sense the darkness. We feel the darkness. And yet, let us by faith know that you are indeed the light. 
You are the light of the world. Lord, that, that the one who spoke creation into being and said, bring light from darkness has spoken in our hearts that we may see the light of the glory of God in the face of the King of glory. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.